0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Benjamin, that chewing is very damp sounding. What are you doing?
2: Oh, I'm, I'm eating a $12 head of iceberg lettuce. I'm rich, Beverly. I'm eating them while they're still available. You want some?
1: Uh, lettuce, no matter what the price, is a revolting vegetable. Oh, oh. And you disgust me right now. Stop everything.
2: moves fast. And you know what else moves fast? The rapidly rising cost of living, everyone. So it's time to stop everything. Beverly, how are you feeling this week?
1: I'm still recovering from your lettuce eating right before the show. We have to talk about some professional standards here, Benjamin. Look, I am not a big fan of lettuce, but you know what does concern me? The rising cost of chili and the impending chili sauce shortage. I'm even loath to speak of it into an open microphone because I want all the chili sauce for myself.
2: My mum is Chinese Malaysian. That woman carries chili in her bag. I've seen this it. is going to be a dark, dark time for her and many, many other people
1: ahead. For those of us who like flavor and reject lettuce, let's join hands now across the aisle and just solidarity in the rapidly rising cost of living. Share amongst your neighbors, everybody. Now the other reason why I'm a little bit sad and distressed, Ben, is that A little while ago, when I was down for the count with the cruel virus, coronavirus, Mm -hmm. you got to interview one of my heroes, idols, bucket list interviewees. I have been a fan of Margaret Cho for decades. I'm not angry, (laughs) I'm only a little bit jealous, and I'm feeling very, very sorry for myself, but happy for you that you got to spend some time in the presence of Margaret Cho, along with Fire Island co-stars Bowen Yang and Joel Kim Booster, who you'll hear from soon.
2: I didn't do a solo <laughs> interview with Margaret Cho and her co-stars. Despite you, mostly it was about a professional opportunity. Mostly. Yeah, we're going to be talking about queer culture and horny, muscular gay men in speedos and jockstraps Stop really Stop talking soon. about yourself, Ben. <laughs> Which, of course, is a really nice segue to discussing her Royal Majesty Queen <laughs> oh Elizabeth goodness. II, because this past week has really seen some quite interesting clashes between pop culture and international seats of power, Beverly. Shall we do a bit of a whip around and talk, first of all, about the Platinum Jubilee, or as many have taken to calling it, Platyjubes?
1: The Jubes. I got to say, I am fond of the Platyjubes. That word. It's a lot of fun. Rolls off the tongue. I've also seen Platinum Jubilee, which is also, <laughs> I think, pretty fun. The jubes, the Platinum Jubilee. Please don't write in angrily. We know that it's called the Platinum Jubilee. We're having a bit of fun. 70 years. That means Queen Elizabeth II is the longest serving monarch in British and Commonwealth History, she surpassed her great-great-grandmother, Queen Victoria, who was queen for 64 years. She is the third longest-serving monarch in modern history. Now, however you feel about the status of Australia, being part of the Commonwealth, whether you're Republican, I feel like it's fair to say 70 years is a very long and impressive run for any job that you are doing. I noticed even... Republicans, Australian Republicans,
2: uh, really conceded the point and gave their respects to Queen Elizabeth. You know, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, he used the occasion of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee to declare Australia's relationship with Britain as one of equals. You know, that raised a lot of eyebrows. He was really signalling his intent to change the agenda when it comes to the Republic. Last week, he even appointed, of course, a new minister overseeing Australia's transition to a Republic And yet, of course, the public sentiment from him was the Queen has been a rare constant in enduring, inspiring presence of calm, decency, and strength.
1: I was just thinking about the fact that Queen Elizabeth II is, for those of us who have grown up in Commonwealth countries, the only Queen most of us have known in our lifetimes, right? Think about the fact Mm -hmm. that her profile has been on a coin in your pocket, in your wallet, whatever, for all those years. And I have been able to, we have been able to track Queen Elizabeth's life, her progression, through the changes in the profile of the coin. I remember Mm. when I was a little kid, she had the profile of a very young woman. And as she's aged, that profile has changed. They've added the lines, they've changed the hair, they've added the wrinkles. And that's a really extraordinary thing, isn't it?
2: Yeah, carrying her in my pocket right now. The party at the Palace concert commemorating the Jubilee drew the BBC's largest TV audience of the year, 13.4 million viewers at its peak. I mean, you keep in mind that Australia's population is something like 25 million and you get a sense of the eyeballs at this event. Now, of course, the Queen did not attend the concert, but I have to say, despite that, Beverly, some pretty Memorable moments have come out of the Platy Jubes, nonetheless, right?
1: Oh, the Platy Jubes has given us lots and lots of coverage, lots of bandwidth all around the world on internet sites and social media feeds. One little guy who really got caught up in the headlines and the swirl of the commentary, none other than four year old Prince Louis caught on camera acting up during the Platinum Jubilee pageant. And, you know, for the most part, a lot of the coverage was positive to the point of fawning, how adorable he is, how cute, these relatable parenting moments. He's four years old, he's up on a platform watching a very, very long public event. Look, I've been the mother of a four-year-old, those kids, they can't sit still. Their brains are developing. It's just like a pinball machine in there, okay, folks? (laughs) There was a lot of write-ups. There's the positive, the fawning. Oh, aren't they cute? But, of course, there's the negative coverage. A lot of it directed at the mother, Kate, the Duchess of Cambridge, and her parenting. And headlines, you know, mainly that she's unable to, quote, control her children. Mm. And basically alluding or implying that based on the activities of a four-year-old during a very public event, that she is a bad mother. Geez, like I said, if you have ever had any experience trying to keep a four-year-old child happy during a long family event, now add on top of that, it's in public, add on top of that, there are live cameras trained on you beaming the event all around the world. I don't know. Maybe that's not fair.
2: Yeah, you might want to say that this is just a story about people's reaction to the royal family, but it probably does reflect on the people making the commentary as well about our sentiments around parenting and whether those sentiments are fair or not in general. We should also point out that William is also a parent. Where was he in this situation? Where was he in the scenario? Maybe an absence of his involvement in and of itself perhaps is worthy of commentary too. Now, you talked about negative commentary. This was an event that marked the return of Meghan and Harry. Back to the Palace, the returning couple post-Oprah interview, if you don't remember that, let's just have the catchphrase there, were you silent or were you silenced? (laughs) I say that to my siblings all the time. They were cheered and booed in some quarters in public appearances as they returned for the Jubilee and in reduced roles having resigned as official working royals. Now, a lot of people pointed out that the significance of them returning Marked the first meeting between the Queen and her great granddaughter and namesake, Lily Diana. So, baby Lily also had her first birthday during the visit. And of course, the return, you can kind of see that reflected in the booing, really did attract some, I think at best, terse and at worst, racist commentary about the couple yet again i mean this is the reason why they left the country in the first place and i think when commentary comes out saying from the press so much for not overshadowing the queen this was commentary about the fact that Meghan and harry left soon after the jubilee would it have killed them to wait a few hours i think commentary like <laughs> that ignores <laughs> the very reason why they can't even be in the country for very long
1: Yeah, look, uh, it's hard living your life in public and what happened to four-year-old Louie for acting out in public and what happened to Meghan and Harry for simply showing up for a family member's big event. I think there are similar forces operating in the media that are driving these kinds of negative headlines and quite unfair. I think we should... Just add a bit of sugar to this teacup that we're talking about while we discuss the platy-jubes. We mentioned the Party at the Palace was the BBC's biggest television event of the year. Well, friend, it started with a bit of acting from the Queen herself and a humble Peruvian migrant, Paddington Brown.
2: Um, perhaps you would like a marmalade
3: sandwich. I always keep one for emergencies. So do I. I... I keep mine in here oh. for later the party is about to start your majesty
2: happy jubileum
4: and thank you for everything
1: that's very kind Look, I'm a cynic, I've got a hard heart, but that is so cute, and it, maybe it's because I've watched Paddington 1 and Paddington 2 about 500 million times, <laughs> but I love I love me some Paddington Brown, he is such a cutie. And think about 95-year-old Queen Elizabeth acting with a CGI bear. Mm.
2: You see all those behind-the-scenes footage of how they make The Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones. She probably had to interact with like a green tennis ball in order to make that clip actually happen. You found that very cute. Not everyone agreed, Beverly. I noted use Samantha Maiden, Gold Walkley Award winner. And I do love me some salty Samantha. Uh, She did say in a tweet, though. English people are very odd sometimes, and as much as I like Paddington b Bear and admire the Queen for sheer resilience, this is daft English crap. Now, she was reflecting a whole (laughs) corner of the internet right there who did agree with her quite strongly. I think the the royals are kind of a strange and bonkers institution in and of themselves, right? So it almost makes sense that they would be commemorating a milestone with similarly bonkers, I mean, in Samantha's word, daft, arguably, stuff. I think of the London 2012 Olympics where they had that whole sequence of the Queen diving out and parachuting from a plane as if she was a superhero. With Daniel Bizar- Craig's
1: James Bond. Don't forget, It
2: was a very, very strange, surreal fever dream of an opening ceremony, especially after Beijing, which was all about regality and power. And here are the Brits just being zany and slightly <laughs> deranged. I let's
1: think have the Queen jump out of a plane with James Bond. Why let's not? Let's have yeah. acting
2: alongside a CGI bear. Why not? It's kind of fitting, I think, with what the brand is and what the institution represents.
1: Look, of all the critiques of the monarchy, the royalty, the Commonwealth, whether we should have a Queen, I think Queen Elizabeth doing a bit of cute acting with Paddington Bear is probably the least of our worries I'm not an award-winning journalist. That is just my humble analysis. Now, Ben, that's over in London at Buckingham Palace. Mm -hmm. Let's keep going in this international whip-around of pop culture meeting the seats of power. We're going to hop on over to the District of Columbia next in the United States. This actually happened last week, but the media coverage keeps rolling on. Korean supergroup BTS visited the White House as part of activities marking Asian American Pacific Island AAPI Heritage Month. That's the entire month of May in the United States. The band showed their respect by dyeing the hair back to black. There were no mm-hmm. highlights. There was no bleaching. There's no peroxide inside and donning like very formal black suits to show exactly That they were taking this very seriously. They had meetings with President Joe Biden, Vice President Kamala Harris, and they also spoke at one of the daily press briefings. They spoke in English, they spoke in Korean, they took no questions. What does
0: it mean to you to come to
3: the White House? We're going to go. We're going to go. They're not going to take any questions, but thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank
2: you. Thank you. Thank you.
3: Thank
2: you, guys. Thank you. Kamsamnida to BTS. Kamsamnida to the White House for arranging that event, which has resulted in photos with BTS and President Joe Biden that look so surreal. We spoke about strange fever dreams before, Beverly. When I look at those photos of BTS in the White House with Joe Biden, it does feel like I'm looking at some alternate reality Like those moments like when Arnold Schwarzenegger became governor of California. Even here in Australia, you know, David Pocock is about to become a senator. BTS is in the White House. They feel like moments lifted from The Simpsons, and I'm all here for it.
1: It's like a music video where BTS are pretending that they've gone to the White House, but they've done it for real. I just want to note a few stats here. Okay, so BTS has visited the White House before South Korean President Yoon Suk-yeol who was sworn in on the 10th of May. Joe Biden did visit South Korea and meet President Yoon in Korea on the 21st of May, but in terms of having him over for a state visit, BTS beat them to the punch. The tweet from Joe Biden's social media account where he shared the visit with BTS is his top tweet of his entire presidency. Wow! BTS is so powerful in terms of the fan base pull that we have we talked about how they can actually change things they're politically active and so for them even though they are south korean they're not asian american per se but they've got a global fan base for them to come out and say we need to look at stopping the violence against asian americans Mm -hmm. that is a powerful message and i do i do think that it will have some impact so It is a big deal that BTS have decided to turn their huge spotlights on this issue.
2: And speaking of celebrity visits to the White House, actor Matthew McConaughey made an impassioned plea for stricter gun control in the aftermath of the Uvalde school shooting.
3: We need responsible gun ownership. Responsible gun ownership.
4: We need background checks. We need to raise the minimum age to purchase an AR-15 rifle to 21. We need a waiting period for those rifles. We need red flag laws and consequences for those who abuse them.
1: There's a personal connection there because Matthew McConaughey grew up in Uvalde, and that audio that we just heard, it's heartbreaking. And just to note that in the White House press briefing room, his wife Camilla was there, and she's holding the converse high tops of one of the victims, and it is mm. Absolutely devastating. So a lot of celebrities visiting the White House to use that platform to get their message out there. We're gonna go to Indonesia, and Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has made his first state visit to Indonesia. Here's a question. How epic and monumental would your everyday actions be? Brushing your teeth, getting dressed, eating breakfast, making coffee in the morning, if it was set to this incredible score? That's something.
2: (laughs) That's the soundtrack I'm going to play in my headphones as I buy very expensive lettuce from now on, Beverly, because it's going to be quite a dramatic moment. $12,
1: $12,
2: $12. (laughs) (laughs) That is some pretty intense scoring. Three Hans Zimmer-esque Brahms. Brahms to end there. (laughs) And it's from the social media team of Indonesian president, Joko Widodo. No words... But a very epic score, very kinetic Michael Bay adjacent style editing to a video documenting Anthony Albanese's first visit to our close neighbour. I don't think they are kind of the images and sounds necessarily synonymous with the new Australian Prime Minister's aesthetic, but... I guess this is what's called a pivot.
1: It's a pivot. It's dramatic. I think it's more speaking to the uh, social media following of President Joko Widodo. Can I just do a little humble brag here for a
2: second? Please, yeah.
1: I met Joko Widodo years before Anthony Albanese did. That is the most
2: hipster thing to say. (laughs) I knew Joko Widodo before he was big, people. That's Beverly Wayne.
1: Because I was part of a very small team, including our sand engineer, Tim Simons, who's sitting across from me, who went on an epic journey to Jakarta, probably about nine years ago. And we produced Radio National's very first live international OB. That was a time. And in that process, I had arranged an interview with then governor of Jakarta, Joko Widodo, via fax. And we got that interview and that was a time because at the time he was being tatted as kind of like Indonesia's Obama, the next president. Mm. And sure enough, he has become the president of that country. Humble brag, dropping the mic. We'll move on now.
2: Humble brag is fine. Of course, Joko Widodo and Anthony Albanese, we've seen footage of them riding their bikes throughout. Bamboo bicycles. Uh, They look pretty cool. That's right. And that's to signal both of the men having humble beginnings. That was the message that um, was being sent with And look at them now, Brom, Brom, Brom. (laughs) Look at them now. It really does sound like the soundtrack from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This is like the United Nations Cinematic Universe. We are in, what, phase 722 of the MCU. Lots of room for new superheroes. If we were to cast Anthony Albanese as an Avenger, I wonder what his superpower would be, maybe addressing the cost of lettuce. <laughs>
4: <laughs> this week is sacred. We're going to Fire Island. And this is why straight people hate us. And also, heterogeneity, Judeo Christian pathology, anal.
3: Love,
0: so
4: For whatever reason, call it and magic, like time, so time
0: so sort of works differently here.
3: Finally, my girls have arrived!
0: <laughs> and that is our makeshift little family. We all met 10 years
4: ago working at the same cursed brunch spot. Bottomless mimosa, bitches! and <laughs> oh, Chan, hey. You gonna refill your bud? I can't believe you talked me into this again. When I come here, I just feel terminally alone. <laughs> oh, are you all right? It's fine. It happens all the time. Do you want some whiskey? It would help with your knees. You trust me, I'm a doctor. <laughs>
2: That is the trailer for Fire Island, the Hulu original film, which is screening here in Australia on Disney Plus. Three words, Beverly, gay Asian representation. Now, yes, we paved the way here for that on Stop Everything, but now it's come to the big screen courtesy of this new American gay rom com. It's modern, it's sexy, it's horny. It's a story of same-sex love set in the iconic queer hotspot of Fire Island but it's inspired by a very classic marriage plot classic. As one review has memorably put it, it's like Jane Austen's Lizzie Bennet has been reborn as a power bottom looking for love.
1: I really think, Ben, that if you lived in the United States, you would be uh, a king of Fire Island. (laughs) Lots to process there, especially you inserting Stop Everything into the pantheon of lgbtqia plus history uh i'm going to take your word for it because you are the gay icon of the show i'm really curious about fire island because i missed this chat and on top of that this week there's been a social media controversy apparently this film about two asian american gay men co-starring margaret cho as well does not pass the bechdel test is this a misogynist film
2: Let's break this down. Is it a misogynist film? Context is everything, Beverly. Okay, let's recap. Earlier this week, the American writer Hannah Rosen, she's best known for her book, The End of Men. She published and then deleted a tweet about the film. She saw it and her reflection was, do we just ignore the drab lesbian stereotypes because cute gay Asian boys? And then she added... Fire Island gets an F-minus on the Bechdel test in a whole new
1: way. Wow. Big tweet, big call. Boys, not men. Interesting choice of words there. So, we've talked about this before. The Bechdel test is kind of like a pop culture litmus test, right? Mm -hmm. It was created by Alison Bechdel, who's a lesbian graphic novelist. And the way it works is you hold up the text that you're reading or watching and you say... This is a test. If it features at least two women, do the women have names? And when they talk to each other, do they talk about something other than a man? So that's Mm -hmm. the test that Hannah Rosen said Fire Island got an F- on.
2: That's right. And so many films actually don't pass the Bechdel test, like big Hollywood films such as Lord of the Rings famously, right? Fire Island technically doesn't pass the Bechdel test, right? You know, Margaret Cho, who we're about to talk to soon – is really the only significant female character. She plays this lesbian den mother to lots of uh, noisy gay men. And on one hand, that criticism is correct, like technically, but on the other hand, it really does miss. Oh, sorry, Beverly?
1: Oh, I just want to interject. Is Margaret Cho's character a drab lesbian stereotype, do you think?
2: Well, she is a lesbian character, but I also wonder, like, what makes... Someone a stereotype. I remember when we made the family law and people said, Are these characters stereotypes? And I'm like, Well, (laughs) they're based on real people. My whole thing with stereotypes is does it dig in further towards what the surface image actually is? Is the character complex? And if so, then they can't be a stereotype, can they?
1: Well, and also, I'm racking my brain trying to think of another pop culture portrayal of an Asian lesbian in a film on TV. I'm coming up empty. So, if you're the only one, are you a stereotype necessarily?
2: Well, this comes back to the whole point about the criticism of Hannah Rosen's tweet because the Bechdel test is all about a corrective to representing people who have been historically erased from popular culture. So, Fire Island may not have two female characters who have names talking to each other about something other than men, but it stars not just one but two gay, male, Asian lead. So, doesn't it do what the spirit of the Bechdel test sets out to interrogate, but for a different demographic? So, the follow-up to all of this, <laughs> Frankie Huang, the writer, tweeted, I'm still thinking about how perfectly the misapplication of the Bechdel test on a gay rom-com represents a certain type of exclusionary, self-serving feminism. Interesting take. Hannah Rosen apologized in a way that I thought was quite graceful. She did say, Look, the movie was telling a story about queer Asian-American men whose experiences don't show up enough in movies or or anywhere else. Um, But the mic drop really does go to Alison Bechdel herself. And she tweeted, okay, I just added a corollary to the Bechdel test, two men talking to each other about the female protagonist of an Alice Munro story (laughs) in a screenplay structured on a Jay Nostin novel equals pass. So it's been updated, people. Anyway, there's lots to talk about, which is why I spoke to the key creatives behind Fire Island recently. There's rising comedy star and now glossy magazine cover boy, Joel Kim Booster. He's the writer and the star of Fire Island. Emmy-nominated Saturday Night Live film favourite and Brisbane-born Bowen Yang, who stars alongside him, and, of course, the living comedy icon and a legendary groundbreaker that is Margaret Cho, They joined me, along with Margaret Cho's Chihuahua, Lucia. Bowen, Margaret, Joel, and friend, (laughs) thank you so much for joining me. You want stop everything? Rising comedy star and now glossy magazine cover boy, Joel Kim Booster, is the star and screenwriter of Fire Island. Emmy-nominated Saturday Night Live, firm favourite, and Brisbane-born, Bowen Yang stars alongside him, as does the living comedy icon and legendary groundbreaker, that is Margaret Cho. And they all join me now on the show. Joel, Bowen and Margaret, thanks for taking the time to stop everything. Yeah, of course.
3: Thank you.
2: Hey, Joel, Fire Island is a sexy, modern, gay rom-com set in the renowned, cruisy, gay getaway spot of the same name. And it kicks off with friends heading off for a week of nonstop partying and hooking up with hot guys. And it happens to be inspired by... Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. So, what happens when you mash a Jane Austen marriage plot with the queer and slutty, and I say that in a slut positive way, world of Fire Island? I mean, it was actually quite easy to map
0: onto that experience once we were out there. You know, like the genesis of the movie was me bringing Pride and Prejudice with me to read on Bowen and I's first trip to Fire Island. And the way in which Jane Austen sort of depicts class and specifically the ways in which people communicate across class lines and fall in love across class lines and rise above them and it sort of cast them off. That all felt real to me and Bowen as we were sort of navigating these artificial classes that gay men created for themselves that really come to fore on that island when you know there is no straight people around to oppress us. How do we oppress each other? And it mapped on so beautifully and it felt just really honest to our
2: our own experience there. Joel, for people outside of the queer community and people outside of, I guess, America, tell us about Fire Island itself. What kind of a place is it and where does it inhabit in the queer imagination and queer culture?
0: Yeah, so Fire Island in itself is attached to Long Island. It's actually quite large and there are only two like small strips of it that are two neighborhoods called Cherry Grove and the Pines that are the gay areas that we think of when we say Fire Island and they've both been these enclaves of and safe havens for queer people for decades and decades. you know, it was a place where we could gather before it was legal for us to gather together in one place and dance and sort of, you know, have sex and fall in love and do all of those things in in the privacy of this beautiful beach idyllic, you know, town. And you feel the history immediately when you step on to the island. It feels almost like tangible. It's in the air and it's really remarkable and, and can be quite transformative.
2: Mm. Bowen, you and Joel are close friends in real life. In Fire Island, you play besties. Joel plays Noah, who's kind of a free spirit, freewheeling, independent, very horny. And you play Howie, who's a hopeless romantic in some ways, slightly insecure. How is the friendship and the dynamic similar and different to the on screen one that we see between Noah and Howie?
4: I would say that it's in a lot of general ways pretty similar. I feel like uh, Joel being sort of someone who I've always looked up to as someone who's really self-assured, I feel like there's that kind of translates into the Noah-Howey relationship and, and the ways that we're different. I think we're both comfortable with who we are for the most part. I'm speaking for myself. <laughs> I feel like, I feel like uh, Joel and I have just gone through similar thematic analogs at around similar times in terms of our careers or our dating lives or the way that we just navigate situations. And I feel like Joel probably wrote Howie and Noah as representative of like the multitudinous aspects of a lot of gay men, which is that they are insecure but also very headstrong or they're horny but also want some sort of affection in their relationship. So I feel like there's a nice sort of duality that is in all of us
2: and margaret you play lesbian den mother erin where does she fit into this ecosystem of gay and queer men
3: well i think when you're queer you naturally kind of calibrate family dynamics into your friend group it just happens i think that's sort of like is a really big part of being gay is that you find your family and they become really important to you and part of romantic comedy too it's not just the romance it's how you talk about it with your friends and family and I think this film does that so beautifully it's really like for me a familiar role I'm in around a lot of queerness and I'm kind of like the lesbian elder which is really <laughs> fabulous and I think that's a really remarkable part of the film is that it really mirrors our real life experience existence.
2: I mean, as you say all of that, Margaret, it strikes me that you're kind of like the lesbian den mother of the queer Asian community worldwide in in (laughs) real life. You've been paving the way for all of us for so many years. How do you reflect on the fact that this is a film featuring Asian, gay, queer people having sex, doing drugs, finding love, that is distributed internationally here in Australia, by disney of all places you know <laughs> queer representation has really changed over the years especially in your lifetime and career right
3: yes it's changed so much and i think it's because of joel's exceptional vision and brilliance in writing and you know he's wonderful to step in it's a beautiful leaving man to like the, the shoulder muscles, the load, hey, <laughs> ah. the musculature, the toned body and the, the is. We've, we've all
2: everybody. seen the definition. Mm. Everybody <laughs> yes. looks
3: so good and he is the best. And so I think that, you know, to be queer and Asian and to be in entertainment, you have to be exceptional to even be noticed. So it's really kind of because of their achievement, you know, like they're able to put this all together to convince everybody like we're so good. We can do this and do this on such a big platform. It's fabulous.
4: But the, the movie what? itself is like a garden that's blossomed from seeds that Margaret herself has planted. Yeah. I mean, literally, though,
0: <laughs> like, I've said this before, but I can draw a straight line from All-American Girl to Fire Island. Like, if I hadn't seen that show when I was a boy, like, I don't know that I would have even been able to conceive a future for myself in Hollywood. So it's
2: surreal, honestly, to be sitting next to you and to have you in the movie. All-American Girl, I believe, was the first Asian-American family at the center of their own show, right? Mm -hmm.
3: Yes. We had another gay Asian, uh, B.D. Wong, who was my brother in the show. And so it's like we're all still working together today, which is really amazing.
2: Bowen, what about you? As a viewer, how do you reflect on changing queer representation to where we are now to what you had or didn't have
4: growing up? Well, and not to, you know, divert it back to Margaret, but... My first exposure to Margaret was Notorious CHO at Carnegie Hall. Like, this is a woman, a queer Asian person who is in the most renowned venue in the world doing comedy. And I think she ends, I remember she ends that special with this treatise on self-esteem, on basically, like, giving language to self-love, you know, at a time when that wasn't really in the popular discourse. And I, I listened to that, and it's remarkable how much her point of view has not changed, about how the things that queer people think about in terms of, you know, rallying up some compassion for yourself is still something that we're talking about today. And I feel like in terms of a representative aspect of it, like, you're able to sort of just take that and sort of drop that into a movie that takes place in 2022 or is released in this time when it feels like we're just being more honest about how Asian queer people actually are and have always been.
2: And Joel, as a screenwriter, you are providing that honesty to audiences. You're drawing us in into a world of gay and queer men, ostensibly mostly cisgender within this world, kind of a world that sometimes polices who is and isn't allowed, right? This Mm -hmm. is a world where the refrains of no fats, no femmes, no Asians can be brought up on apps within the community, you know, who is considered acceptable or not is all there but here you place gay asian people at the center of the narrative what does that do you know bringing people into the margins and putting them in the spotlight i mean for me it
0: was it was just about telling my own story. I think for so long in this industry, I've been told to sort of try and filter my own story through a more palatable lens, you know? Like, oh, can you make this story? But like, no one's gonna relate to it if you tell such a niche story about a gay queer Asian man and his gay Asian best friend going, uh, you know, on this very gay trip. And so, uh, you know, for me, it wasn't I don't know, I wasn't thinking about it in terms of of making a statement even. It was just about the honesty and and the authenticity of my story and, and my experience that I've had with Bowen navigating these
2: spaces as queer Asian men. Well, Bowen, let's talk about you and kind of zoom out a little because when it comes to you and your career... You're the first Asian-American cast member on Saturday Night Live. Besides that, you co-host the hugely successful podcast Les Culturistas with fellow comedian and culture consultant Matt Rogers, who co-stars in this movie. Now, of course, you're funny in this film as well, but it isn't the sketch comedy that we're used to. It's more of a straight, and I say that with, you know,
4: quote marks, straight acting role. (laughs) What was that like for you? It was this... Thing that I did not take for granted that I sort of accepted and received as this gift from Joel and Andrew um, This thing that kind of completes like Some sort of expression that I like you know have been able and and lucky enough to put out there where I feel like it is so easy especially for I think Asian people to be sort of mm, Have your dimensions removed as a performer a little bit to just be one thing and I think That's always been my anxiety is even on a sketch show to pitch to the rafters and do comedy that's supposed to be efficient and maybe not always nuanced. There was this concern for me that like I was gonna maybe wallow in that for too long and for this movie to come along that's so close to me, close to our friendship, close to this place that I love going to, that I have a history with. It's such a rich thing that I was able to sort of throw myself into and I'll, I'll always be grateful for it.
2: Margaret, I've seen some audience members and critics have noted that for a long time, when it comes to queer representation, there has been some diversity, but it's kind of been limited in terms of the kind of narratives that we tell each other. There's the coming out story, the in love with my straight friend story, dead end romance, the kind of wrestling with HIV AIDS narratives, all of which are very legitimate, important narratives, right? But this seems to break open the mold and give us something new and actually fun. When you read the script that Joel presented you, what were your first impressions and how important was that fun dimension to this?
3: Oh, it was incredibly important. And the fact that there's actually a lot of lessons that have never been taught before when we're talking about being queer and Asian in America and going to places that have such class barriers that are very rigid that people don't recognize. The mainstream world wouldn't recognize from the outside. They think there's only like one way to be gay. But when you go into queer spaces, like there's a reason why during Pride Month we all go into caloric and credit card debt (laughs) where we're trying to like diet and buy ourselves into the perfect gay self in order to present to other gay people how proud we are to be ourselves. (laughs) And so it's like a very efficient script in that it really shows all of these microaggressions in a way that's actually really funny in that people that are routinely committing them can also laugh and recognize within themselves. So there's a lot of lessons taught that need to be taught but also it's done in such a gentle and funny way.
2: Joel, we've been talking about this and you've been saying that it's a personal story, you know, like this is essentially you telling your story on the screen. Of course, it's fictionalised for the screen, but how many of the scenes that we see here are almost ripped from your own life?
0: There's a number. I mean, and it varies from the very fun. Like, Bowen and I and our group of friends really do count down the sunset when we're on Fire Island. (laughs) We are that obnoxious. We are those people. But also, you know, some of the more toxic moments in the movie as well, like the moment when we walk into the party and they say, I think you have the wrong house. That Mm -hmm. is something that has happened to me on multiple occasions on Fire Island over the course of the years that I've been going there. And so there's a lot that's been ripped from the headlines of my life. And I hope that it reads
2: that people feel the authenticity of those moments. Do you also hope that some of those people who would say things like, are you in the right place? See this (laughs) film for other reasons. (laughs) Yeah.
0: I mean, the thing is, is when people say things like that, it's usually so thoughtless. And so it's so meaningless to them. It's so impactful to me, but it's so meaningless to them. And so I wonder if people who have said things like that to, you know, people like me or Bowen will even notice, well, you know, I have a feeling that they'll probably laugh along with everyone else in the theater, you know, at the jokes and things like that. But I don't know that they'll necessarily feel called out by the movie um, specifically.
2: Yeah. I mean, what I love about this movie is when we talk about queer diversity and queer representation in film, often people think about, oh, if we have some gay characters in there, if we have some queer characters in there, that's it. But what you're doing is really digging into the nuance, the layers, and the ecosystem of people sometimes fighting against themselves, right? What do each of you want the audience thinking about And feeling
4: by the time the credits start rolling, Bowen? I mean, my favorite kinds of rom coms are the ones that, you know, have you leaving the theater or, you know, the viewing going, I want to fall in love. And I feel like, I hope this movie does that, but I also hope this movie gives the audience some feeling of having been on the trip with us that for me, it's like I've had little winter doldrums where I'm like, I wish I could go back to Fire Island right now. And I think I watched the first cut of the movie a few months ago when it was cold. I watched the movie and it felt like I had gone back, which was was Mm. such a lovely feeling. So I hope the audience gets that sensation too.
3: It's so romantic and I think it really belongs up there in the constellation of amazing romantic comedies that we always return to, to reinvigorate ourselves with that feeling and dream of love. And I think it's just a beautiful movie.
0: Yeah, and ultimately, I I just want people to walk away from this movie, especially queer people, being glad that they're queer. You know, you brought it up earlier, but so much of the media aimed at us is about our trauma, you know, and I hope that this movie can be a little bit of a reprieve from that and that people walk away
2: feeling joy. And just finally, Joel, there are a lot of memorable side characters in this as well. Is Fire Island the start of something bigger? Like, is there a Fire (laughs) Island cinematic universe waiting to be explored? You know what? I think that I could write an
0: entire movie about Margaret's character. Yeah. Uh, And I think that's a spinoff. I think Tomas and Matt (laughs) like uh, deserve their own murder mystery. They're solving a mystery on a cruise. I don't know. Like, I, I could see a movie featuring and starring all of these Characters in one way or another, and maybe we'll even do a sequel. We'll
2: all come back. Well, I can't wait to see the version of Fire Island Mandalorian style here on Disney. <laughs> Where it's screening in Australia. Joel Kim Booster, Bowen Yang, Margaret Cho. Thank you so much for joining me here on Stop Everything. Thanks for having me. Thank, thank you. And you can watch Fire Island now on Disney Plus as a Star Original in Australia.
3: located you guys far from Hawkins
1: because I thought you'd be safe reach you, you, you. a war is coming I'm afraid your friends at Hawkins are very much in the eye of the storm
4: I don't have my powers
2: What you're hearing there is a trailer from Indonesian President Joko Widodo (laughs) commemorating Anthony Albanese's visit. No, it's not. It's not. Sounds just as dramatic though, doesn't it? It is the trailer to Netflix's Stranger Things, which is now in its fourth season. You might remember the other week. We gave ourselves some homework to watch it and Beverly, you have blitzed through The entire season, not the entire season in whole, the entire season so far, and we'll talk about what exactly that means. This is the very hyped new release of the 80s sci-fi phenomenon, Stranger Things. Beverly? Yes? Where do we begin in Season 4?
1: Wow. Well, first of all, we begin by saying we're back unbelievably in the cursed town of Hawkins, Indiana. You thought at the end of Season 3 that surely nothing more could happen to this little tiny town. But boy, oh boy, chaos, terror... Hideous murders are still happening in Hawkins. We're also going to California, where Eleven, now going by her regular name of Jane, along with Will and Jonathan and Joyce Byers, played by Winona Ryder, they're kind of in a a witness protection program type thing. And then we're also in a brutally cold Russian prison camp in the Kamchatka Peninsula. I remember
2: vaguely admittedly the end of stranger things three signaled that this is going to be a world and a setting that was going to expand you know take us not just beyond hawkins indiana but beyond america itself so a very interesting kind of timing given what's happening in russia as well but also as i signaled before an interesting release strategy from netflix when i said beverly you've watched all of it It's all of it so far Mm -hmm. because Netflix is doing an unusual thing for Netflix, which usually releases the entire season to binge straight away. They haven't done that this time.
1: No, they haven't. And when we say all, let's just say – the all that we have right now, that's a lot of all. Those mm-hmm. episodes one to seven, they're all over an hour long. Episode seven is 90 minutes plus. Wow. That's like feature film level. These first seven episodes, are calling them volume one. And volume two will be the final two episodes, eight and nine of this season. And that episode nine is expected to run over two hours. Those final two episodes will be released on the 1st of July. <laughs>
2: You may not be totally across Stranger Things Season 4 yet, but you will probably know that this is the show that's also been responsible for Kate Bush roaring her way back up, running. She's running up that hill. She's running up that hill with running up that hill. It's being discovered by a whole new generation of people because it's being used in the Stranger Things soundtrack.
1: That's a great thing about... Stranger Things is this continuous mining of 80s nostalgia, right? And Mm -hmm. this is introducing a whole new generation of people to the amazing, like, lovely, weird synth of Kate Bush's music. And it's not the only thing that is mining nostalgia. There's so many references in Stranger Things that I find myself wondering, am I reading that into it? did the Duffer brothers intend to put that in or am I just now so bathed in all these references that I'm seeing things that they didn't even intend to put in there I'm seeing references to the Goonies to Nightmare on Elm Street Mm. to Stephen King's Carrie to E.T. you know all of this is coming through and I think that has always been one of the pleasures of watching Stranger Things. Also, the way they luxuriate and play around with 80s technology, the way they have to disguise a phone call and its origins. You know, you could do that with a VPN on your smartphone these days. But the size of the machine that they need to triangulate calls is quite hilarious. And it's a great reminder. I was watching Stranger Things, and it reminded me of a long-buried experience. Is that back in the day, we used to look at the newspaper to find movie session times. I had forgotten that happened in my lifetime. It's that that kind of thing. The other thing I want to say about Stranger Things, of course, is that the cast has grown up. They've gone from awkward middle school age now to high school. And what this series does not shy away from is that by the fourth season of everything they've gone through in Hawkins, all of them are deeply traumatized. So there is an edge of psychological trauma. They're really leaning hard into showing us how violent and gruesome it is. And in a way, that's its own recall to 80s horror films.
2: Does it make sense, though, Beverly? You know, like, if you were describing (laughs) the plot to me, could you actually give me everything in a nutshell in a consistent way that makes sense to you? No,
1: and part of watching it is actually trying to remember what happened in the first three seasons again. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that character. What's his name? Maybe it's just because I'm getting older of age since the first season came out, but it's kind of a a memory jog, and it doesn't make sense because uh, I don't want to spoil it, but just one thing – If playing your favorite song can rescue you from being killed by Vecna, like just playing your favorite song, that's pretty easy. How can somebody so powerful as Vecna just hear Kate Bush's running up that hill and be like, "Okay, actually, I'm not going to kill you after all. Go on. Get on with your day.
2: Because that is the power of Kate Bush, Beverly. (laughs) As a Kate Bush fan, it totally makes sense to me. And just going back on that point, can I just say it is remarkable because part of the Kate Bush story is that she was never really able to crack the American market in the way that she did with the UK. I mean, Hounds of Love running up that hill did go into the charts, but this in 2022, the resurgence of running up that hill, so many years later after that record came out, Marks the first time she's cracked the top 10 in the U.S., which has even earned a hat tip from Kate Bush herself to Stranger Things where she's expressed her gratitude and love of the show.
1: Yeah, that's right. She wrote that in her newsletter. A few other new developments in the cast. Paul Reiser. Remember him from Mad Ah, About You?
2: Mad About You and also (laughs) Aliens, directed by James Cameron. Oh,
1: that's true. That's true. He joins the show as Dr. Sam Owens. He's kind of the good cop scientist to Matthew Modine's totally deranged bad cop scientist. I really like Argyle the new friend for older brother Jonathan. He's a stoner pizza delivery guy. And in and of itself, again, a throwback to 80s pop culture, Bill and Ted's kind of situation, right? This long-haired, relaxed stoner. And Winona Ryder as Joyce Byers in this odd couple action movie storyline in Russia with Murray, who's now a karate black belt, is quite hilarious. It's
2: been interesting to see Netflix give us some, but not all of Stranger Things. And they're going to release the final episodes on a, a later date um i do wonder whether this marks the end of what netflix pioneered back in the day which is to drop an entire series right there right now we've seen cultural conversations um really gain traction when you slow release stuff hbo has never departed from that model Apple TV+, Plus, they release some things, but not all things, so everyone's at the same point in the show at the same time to make sure they can capitalise and maximise on that cultural buzz. I do wonder whether this is the end of Netflix, dropping all episodes all at once.
1: Well, let's come back to that after the 1st of July, Ben, when hopefully you've had time to catch up on some of the first episodes and I'll probably have watched the last two episodes and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of conversation about the finale of the season. So, let us reconvene this conversation, shall we?
2: You can always join us for that conversation by following Stop Everything on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. On the ABC Listen app, you just need to search for Stop Everything then tap the star that will add us to your favourites and that way you'll never miss an episode.
1: Just imagine those three dramatic brahms when you braum. do that. Brahms, <laughs> Brahms. Uh, thank you very much to our producer Sarah Mashman, and our sound engineers, Tim Simons and Brendan O'Neill. Stop Everything is produced on the lands of the Kulin Nation, the lands of the Darwell people, and on the lands of the Muwanina people from country around Nipaluna. We will catch you next week.